0: Thank you. All right, I had mentioned, I believe it was last week, that uh, we have finished our uh, shorter 12-week teaching series on the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, in terms of how they apply to the church today. And um, I had mentioned that I was considering the possibility of not returning to the book of Acts right now, Uh, to continue our ongoing study in Acts. And so I have reached a a decision on that, and I'm going to be developing something new. Um, We probably will return to Acts at some point, but I'm going to continue to pause that, and I'm going to start a new series of studies at the beginning of the year. I appreciate you um, praying for my, my... My preparations, I think it's something important. It's something I I believe the Lord laid on my heart. And so I appreciate your prayers for that. In the meantime, um, we've got this week. um, Next week, of course, is home church. And then um, the the following Sunday. So I've got two Sundays to uh, cover. And I'm going to do topical things. Uh, Like today, I'm going to do just a one-week study, not connected to any. Particular series, uh, so Philippians chapter two. If you join me there for our study today, I just want to address three passages of Scripture this morning. They're all related, they're all connected, and they're all um, they're all developing or focused on the theme in terms of our calendar that we've been thinking about with um, the Thanksgiving holiday. I do want to talk about thankfulness today. I'm calling this particular study, though, a grumbling versus gratitude. And I think it'll become evident as we read this portion in Philippians uh, why I chose that particular uh, title for our study. So I want to read from Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, This passage, along with the other two that we're going to try to cover this morning, or should be familiar, and, and, and really very little of what I say this morning will be brand new information to you Uh, this is more coming as peter described in one of his letters coming by way of reminder things that you already know and yet would benefit i believe from being reminded of them my own heart was benefited just by preparing this study and being reminded from all three of these passages of things that i know really well but Uh, we can't, you know how it is for us as human beings, even as much as we've grown in the Lord, uh, we can't remember everything all at once. You know, only the Lord is capable of doing that. And so uh, we have a little bit of an issue as believers of out of sight, out of mind. You know, the idea of if we're not focused on something, we're not paying attention to that thing. And things can slip into our patterns of behavior that should no longer be part of who we are and how we behave in this world. And so I wanna focus on that this morning. And, and so what we're looking at is a, a negative behavior and a positive behavior. The negative one is grumbling, as it describes here, is described here in verse 14, in, in uh, what we just read, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now disputing is a little bit worse than grumbling. It's like grumbling leads to disputing. One thing lays the foundation for the other. Disputing is what we would describe as open fighting. You know, where people, any, any kind of relationship, could be, could be friends, it could be people who are married to each other, could be church members, but people who are so upset with each other that it just spills out into open fighting with each other. But I'm focused not so much on the open fighting. My hope would be that we've grown past open fighting in our walk with the Lord. But I'm going to focus our attention on the grumbling, which I think the further we grow in the Lord, uh, between the two, I think we're more vulnerable to grumbling because it's more subtle than open fighting. If, If there was a fist fight that were to break out in the service this morning. Let's say Sam is gonna go at it with Victor. The, the, the two of them, just they're just so upset with each other and they just start trading blows here in the congregation. I don't think there would be anybody here, a single person here that would say, oh, that's fine. We would all immediately understand and they would even know in their hearts as they're pummeling each other just how deeply wrong and how offensive to the Lord, how destructive that is to the kind of relationship we're meant to have in the body of Christ. But I think it's entirely possible, and I certainly don't think that would be the case between Sam and Victor, but I think it's entirely possible, even after the service ends today, even after you hear this teaching, to even in our fellowship time, to um, be not so much on guard and not so quick to discern and recognize the dangers and the destructive influence of grumbling creeping into our communications with one another. So that was on my heart to focus on. And the reason I've titled it Grumbling Versus Gratitude is that in my perspective, as I was revisiting these three passages that we're looking at today, uh, the two things are mutually exclusive. I don't believe it's possible for there to be an expression of grumbling out of a grateful heart. And I don't think it's possible for there to be true expressions of gratitude out of a grumbling heart. The two things are like oil and water. They don't mix and they're really they're really at odds with each other in that way. So let's take a look at this first passage in some of the details just revisiting some of the details. Again, this is these are things you've you've studied we studied these passages because they all contain all three of them they contain present imperatives and we've been studying that for the last three years in our in our home church studies so we covered all three of these passages already in some detail but again just by way of reminder first detail of the passage starting in verse 12 is the word therefore and you've heard this before when you see the word therefore especially in paul's letters this is this is certainly true when you see the word therefore you want to ask what is it therefore so the idea is what paul's doing is he's connecting what he's about to say to what he's just said so i didn't have time and I, i don't want to take time to develop what precedes verse 12 but verses 5 through 11 in philippians 2 are some of the most important verses in the entire new testament and it's one of those places in paul's letters only by the by the inspiration of the spirit of god can someone accomplish this Where in just a few short verses five through eleven paul covers the entire story of redemption from eternity past to eternity future and he is focused of course on christ's role in redeeming us the wonderful thing that only he could accomplish and did accomplish in his sacrifice for us and how that sacrifice is meant to change us and transform us as it saves us and then he says this word in verse 12 therefore meaning because of the saving work of christ now i'm going to teach you some things that are meant to be connected to his saving work but flow out of it and what flows out of it of course is the ongoing work of the lord So the Lord did the greatest work that's ever been accomplished when Christ was sacrificed on the cross for us and when he rose again from the dead. But then following that and following the moment that your heart truly believes that, what is God doing after that with you and what is God doing after that in you? And the idea is that in one sense, God has stopped working because the work was finished and accomplished and fulfilled and completed in Christ. But in another sense, God's work just is starting from the moment you truly believe those things because now his work shifts from saving you to sanctifying you. And sanctification is just a gigantically huge project that God has embarked on in your life, gigantically huge. And the reason why I use the word gigantic is the whole idea of sanctification, remember, is what's the end goal of sanctification? What's the final goal of God sanctifying work in you from the moment you first were born again, the moment you first believed? What's the goal? To make you like his son. In every way. To completely change you from the inside out so that you are like Christ. So if you understand who he really is, how great he really is, all of the attributes and qualities that he perfectly represents, and then you shift your focus from that to where you're at the moment you're truly saved, as great of a change as it was to save you, it's just the beginning of a gigantic amount of ongoing, continuing changes that need to happen with you from the moment of your salvation to the moment you breathe your last breath in this world. And this is what this passage is focused on. So he says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not, much, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, meaning I'm thankful Paul is saying this. He's kind of trusting the Philippians. He's saying, look, I'm thankful that you weren't just showing efforts in the direction of what I'm about to describe when I was physically present to peer over your shoulder and see how you were doing in my personal presence but that you took it to heart, you believed in the importance and significance of these responsibilities, and even after I left the church and went on with the rest of my apostolic assignment, and now I'm physically absent from you, you've still prioritized this concern. So what is the concern? Work out, in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you know what this is not saying. This is not saying work for your own salvation as if you could contribute anything to your being saved. That's not at all what it's saying. But it is saying this since Christ has saved you, the salvation is already accomplished. Now, work out all the implications of his saving you into every area of your perspective, of your attitude of your behavior, and of your words. Every area of your life is now being transformed to fit with the saving work that he accomplished in you on the day of your new birth. So work out your own salvation. That means, when he says your own salvation, that means he's making us responsible for our sanctification. It doesn't mean we can accomplish our salvation apart from the ongoing outpouring of God's grace in our hearts, but it does mean that even with God's grace to sanctify you at work in you, you still have a responsibility to participate wholeheartedly, diligently, seriously, intentionally with his plan to change you, to keep changing you. So work out your own salvation. Do so with fear and trembling why with fear and trembling why not with arrogant presumption (laughs) why with fear and trembling because even with our best intentions our efforts to sanct to be sanctified to to make progress in our sanctification our efforts are going to be flawed and imperfect and we're going to periodically stumble and fail in those efforts And so we need to be reminded of just how dependent we are on the Lord in making any progress in sanctification whatsoever. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then in verse thirteen, 4, meaning this is the reason why you should have such confidence, even though you're in fear and trembling, you can have confidence to make progress in sanctification for this reason and only for this reason. For it is God who works in you. God who works in you. He's not talking about on the day you were born again. He's talking about every day following the new birth. God is at work in you. So you got up this morning, and all of you that are here made the best choice you could make, which was to come to church, to be where you're supposed to be. And in that decision god was at work whether you were aware of it or not even if you've got the habit of going to church which most of you have uh and it's a good habit it's one of the best habits we can have even in that still god was at work in you to solidify that habit did any and i don't want to see a show of hands did anyone have even a single tempting thought this morning of maybe i'll just stay home you knew in your heart i should be there but maybe i'll just stay home today For whatever reason, (coughs) oh yeah, I've got that little, you know, or whatever. I had that thought this morning, believe it or not, but yet here I am. Why am I here rather than at home this morning? It's where I'm supposed to be. And God was at work in me this morning just to get me over that little hump that I encountered in my consideration of whether to come or not. Now, of course, if I didn't come, it'd be big trouble in in River City. But the the point being that for all of us, we encounter those moments of consideration of am I going to do what I know the Lord would want me to do in this situation or am I going to do what I would prefer to do? And what I want to set up is just that reminder that we, we have an ongoing sequence of experiences from the day of our salvation forward We have an ongoing sequence of experiences where we have the possibility of doing what we know we should do, what would be pleasing to the Lord, what would be right in his eyes, what would be most beneficial for the body of Christ, or doing what we would prefer to do in that same circumstance. And we need God's ongoing grace to get over those humps. And his ongoing grace is here characterized not interestingly as grace, but as work. It is grace, God who is at work in you, that's his grace. That's the presence and the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit working inside of you. But the the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, characterizes it here, not as grace, but as work. Why? Because he wants you to understand it takes effort to change. But interestingly, who's exerting the effort first? It's God himself who's exerting effort. It takes effort, think of this, it takes effort on God's part to change you. Even as a born-again believer, even as someone who loves God, loves God's word, loves God's people, loves God's purpose, loves God's kingdom, loves his name, loves everything about him. Still, it takes effort, significant effort on God's part to effect real Lasting change in our life. And the word that he chooses here, for it is God who is at work, is a Greek word, energeo. Where do you think we get our English word energy from? It's from this Greek word. God has to exert holy, glorious energy inside of you in order to change you. But, The implication of this verse is, when is he doing that? Every single day. He is, every day he has one agenda with you now that you're saved. That's to change you to become more like his son. You wake up, that's what his plan is. You might think, what do we have planned today, Lord? What we have planned today is for you to change, to become a little bit more like Christ, to recognize the release of God's energy inside of you in order to change you. If you get that, if you understand that, why not buy into it and participate in it and stop resisting it at key points that are keeping you from changing in the way that God wants you to change. For it is God who works in you and now, just so we don't misunderstand, that, that release of holy, heavenly energy inside of you by the presence of the Holy Spirit is focused in two directions at the same time in your life. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does it mean that God is at work in you to will? It means that God's energy being released inside of you to change you is trying to get you to change the decisions and choices you're making in life. The decisions and choices you're making. The the way you establish your life priorities. Because life priorities are all about choices and decisions. Some things are more important to us than other things. That's why we call them priorities. Priorities. And some things are more important to God than other things. And so we have God's priorities. God is at work in you, releasing energy inside of you on a daily basis in order to influence you to make the choices that are pleasing to him that are serving his purpose that are following his agenda rather than just simply letting you spin your wheels carrying out your own personal agenda which is what characterized your life before you were ever saved god is at work in you to will to make new better wiser more god-honoring choices Second, God is at work in you to work. That's interesting phrasing. God is releasing energy in you to do what? To release energy. He uses the same Greek word, energeo. God is working in order to stir you to start working. He wants you to, again, buy in. Invest with your own energy in the project that he's revealed that he is wanting to accomplish in your life. So God's energy is stirring your own responsive energy. How much energy does he want you to to show in this buying into his project? It's a word energy here which which implies great effort. A lot of effort. Not just, you know, ho oh, hum, I'll, I'll throw some effort God's direction like I'm throwing a, a, a dog a bone. But full buy in is what He's after. He wants you to be as energetic in your diligent response to His desire to change patterns in your life as He is in making that influential effort to change us. Now, Both of these phrases, God is at work in you to will and to work, are in the original Greek as Paul wrote it, in the present tense, not present imperative. These two are to will and to work are in the present tense. Present tense emphasizes what, and we focused on this in those studies we've done, what does present tense tell us? It always applies every moment of our lives because every moment is the present moment of our lives. We only ever live in the present moment of our lives. And so the idea is God wants us in the present moment to choose in a new way and in the present moment make new and significantly greater efforts to live in a way that's fully pleasing to him. Now, in the very next verse, it's it's just interesting what Paul immediately goes to. Like, I mean, there's a thousand things that need to be changed in us. And what's the one that he chooses to highlight first? Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's just interesting to me. I mean, out of all of the things that God wants to change in me, why does he highlight grumbling first? I even feel like grumbling about that. Why that first? You think there's bigger fish to fry, right? You think there'd be bigger concerns on God's heart when he wants to change me. The very first thing he highlights, it's time to stop grumbling. Do all things without grumbling. How big of a category would you say all things represents here? In our lives. There's a few cases in the Bible. I've highlighted these in other studies. There's a few cases where the word all doesn't literally mean all possible things, but it's focused on all of a specific grouping or category. But here, the word all and the phrase all things refers to everything going on in our lives. And there's no way to narrow that scope of that category do all things in your life everything you will ever do every everything you're presently doing everything from the day of your salvation forward that you've ever done do all things without grumbling now this one is a present imperative so it applies every day you wake up in the morning if you needed a a morning saying to just get your mind and heart oriented in the right direction to, to tackle the day in front of you this would be a good one today I'm going to do all things by the grace of God without grumbling about anything that's a big that's actually a big challenge right I think if we were to do that tomorrow morning with Monday as the target a grumble free Monday Um, i think every single one of us would fall short every single one of us would probably grumble at least once during the day which just tells me maybe that's why the lord targeted it it's such a pervasive yet subtle issue in our lives so he chose to highlight it first but it's a present imperative. The imperative emphasizes what again? You know it. We've said this literally dozens of times over the last 3 years in our home church studies. What does the imperative emphasize? It's a it's a it's a exhortation, an exhortation from the Lord that comes directly from the throne of God carrying all of the throne's authority with it meaning you can disregard what he's saying here, but you do so at your own peril. Whenever God speaks a word of authority or a word of command, and understand this, not everything God has to say to his people is a command. He has other things to say to us besides commanding us. But when he does choose to command us, he intends to hold us accountable to what he commands us to do. And there are consequences if we choose to disregard. And remedial training on the other side of the disregard. You know what remedial training is when we're talking about the Lord training us in a remedial way? Remedial means in order to change us. But training emphasizes he will apply whatever pain is necessary in order to get our full heart's attention and to adjust our perspective, and our attitude as needed. All right, so do all things without grumbling. That means everything in your life. But what is grumbling? Let's define it. Let's be clear about it. Grumbling defined, I'm going to give you a simplified definition. Murmuring with discontented complaints in your heart and in your words now. Meaning it was in your heart, but it's leaked out of the heart and found expression in words. But what kind of words? It's kind of, it's kind of undertone words. Meaning it's not so much loud and vociferous, it's more like you are saying it and you're saying it out loud and you're saying it to someone, although you can grumble just when you're all alone. Have you ever caught yourself grumbling when no one was there to hear you? Yeah, yeah I grumble. all. The, I, I do, the majority of my grumbling I do by myself. <laughs> I mean, I've talked about this before. You catch me in traffic, you know, you'll catch me grumbling. And it's, uh, and it, you know, no one's there to hear me except the Lord. But I'm, you know, I'm grumbling about the knuckleheads that are all around me as they're, you know, showing how little they paid attention in driver's education. Um, And that's just one area, obviously. Um, So grumbling defined as murmuring discontented complaints. How, How much leeway does the Lord grant us to indulge in murmuring discontented complaints? Zero. That's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is, God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he wants you to do all things without grumbling. That means he doesn't want to hear it. And if you say it, he hears it. And if no one else hears it, he hears it. Have you ever been around a a hardcore complainer? I mean, someone that just... They open their mouth and a complaint will come out. Do you enjoy their company? No. Do you, do you seek their company out? Like, I can't wait to go hear the next complaint. It's just, it, it just, it's just so uplifting. It's so encouraging. It's so God-glorifying. I mean, there is nothing about complaining that is music to the Lord's ears. But I, I want you to think of this, and it's, un, it's unavoidable. Because the Lord's present everywhere. And he's not just present everywhere like external to you. He's present inside of you. So he's everywhere that you are. And every time that you open your mouth and indulge in grumbling, who has to hear it if no one else has to hear it? You kind of have learned to enjoy your own grumbling, but he doesn't. He really doesn't. And think about this. You know, if there's someone that's just given over to complaining, I don't seek out their company. I kind of look for ways to avoid their company. And the Lord can't avoid your company. <laughs> think of it. I mean, I, I mean, we, we kind of put things on the Lord's shoulders that I don't think we should put on his shoulders at times. Like, of course he's the Lord. He's just used to it. Well, yeah, he's used to it, but he doesn't like it. That's why he says with authority, do all things without grumbling. I want my children to stop grumbling is what he is saying here. But the question I want to ask next is, why? Why do we ever grumble? I was in a conversation with uh, David and some other folks recently, and he shared something that was like right in line with this word of exhortation I'm sharing with you today. He He said, I have an awesome life. Now, I'm not exactly quoting him. I'm just kind of paraphrasing what I heard him say. He said, I have an awesome life. My life is, is wonderful. I have no valid reason to ever complain. And that's the point here. So w- w- the question is, why do we grumble? Well, let me give you three things to think about in terms of explaining why it's such a pervasive issue even for the children of God. First, grumbling is a sin. So you can ask the question, uh, once we're saved from sin, why do we still sin? Why do we still sin? Well, there there are unresolved attachments in our heart to old indulgences. Indulgences that we enjoyed before the moment of our redemption and now have to be tracked down, sought out, and extinguished with great Diligence, so it's a sin. Second, grumbling—you maybe have never thought of it from this perspective before, but this occurred to me. This isn't something I read anywhere. It just was a thought in my own mind and heart as I was preparing this. I think grumbling functions as kind of an anti-prayer. Think of it. Why do we pray? Why do we ever pray? We pray because we recognize we're not capable of changing things in our lives. That need to be changed or changing things in the world around us that need to be changed and so we we look to the lord we lean on the lord we trust in the lord we have faith in the lord and he calls us to pray and he says he's willing to listen and then we recognize when we're in our best moments we recognize that he and he alone has the power to effectively change those things that need to be changed But grumbling it kind of functions in the exact opposite way and focuses our our heart's concerns in the opposite direction. Grumbling happens when something's not changing the way we want it to be. Not changing in the way that we want it to change. Maybe it's not changing fast enough. Maybe it's just not changing at all. And so instead of prayer we indulge in our worst moments in grumbling about it. The very, think of this, every single time you're grumbling, you should be praying instead. But what we end up allowing ourselves room to do is to just complain about it, murmur about it under our breath, implying that, you know, something's wrong and it's, I I rarely grumble about myself, but I, I, am commonly grumbling about people in my life or circumstances surrounding me that that aren't the way i think they should be and in some cases i might even be right maybe they shouldn't be that way in other cases i've seen it completely from the wrong perspective and god was at work in a way that i didn't see him and so i'm grumbling about it rather than praising him for it but one way or the other if i'm grumbling i'm not praying so it's kind of an anti-prayer Third, uh, turn if you would for a moment. I said I'd only share three verses. I'm just going to reference this one real quick. Uh, Matthew 12. 33 through 37. The teaching of the Lord Jesus about the human heart. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And he's speaking here to um, those who are not walking with the Lord. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. He's talking about things that are stored in our heart and filling our heart and that when we open our mouth and speak, what comes out of our mouth are things that have been treasured up in the heart. So the third thing I want you to understand about grumbling is that it it arises from an unhealthy heart. How much you grumble is kind of a measurement of how unhealthy your heart is at any given moment. And that can vary of course. You, know, you can have a healthier heart at one point and then and then lose progress and and reindulge in grumbling about things that you should be praying about rather than grumbling about but when you do grumble you're expressing you're just all you're doing is displaying your unhealthy heart for others to hear it or at the or at the least the lord himself uh, let's go back then and finish the philippians passage philippians 2 one last detail I don't want us to miss. I'll read verse 14 again do all things without grumbling or disputing that Now the word that functions as a like if you were if you were grammatically structuring what Paul is saying, everything following the word that is now in parentheses. He is stopping to explain the purpose for what he just declared in in verses 13 and 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that for this purpose you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I think we're all aware of this if you pay any attention to the world around you nowadays, do we not live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation of people? And it's seemingly, to my observation, getting only more twisted and more crooked as we go. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. What the Lord is after here is contrast in order to draw attention to something that's meant to be glorious in its contrast to to something that's very much not glorious. You've heard this analogy before. I didn't come up with it. It's a great one though. You know, like when you go into a a fine jewelry store in order to shop for fine jewelry and they bring out their best diamonds to show you, um, not that I've ever done that kind of shopping, but still, you know, you understand conceptually. What do they put the diamonds on when they put them on the display counter? Yeah, black velvet. Why? For the contrast. The contrast of the dark black background brings out all of the beauty, the fire, the, 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 the glory that's found in the diamond, which would be there without the black velvet, just the same. But it's not as obvious without the contrast. So the Lord places his people in the midst, in the midst of blackness in order for us to shine as lights in the world to call attention to what? to how changed we are by his saving work but if we're grumbling just as much as the people in the world that don't know the Lord around us will they perceive the contrast? and that's the point is they need to see there's something different going on with this one than there is in my own heart and in my own life. And that is useful to the Lord to stir their desire to get what they don't possess, which is something you are displaying through not just your words, though your words are important, but your changed words, your transformed words, your transformed attitude, your transformed perspective. All right, now I'm trying to decide uh, where to go from here in, in terms of the time we have left. Let's, let's do at least one more passage of these three I had intended to accomplish. Colossians chapter 3. And again, we studied this one in our home church studies not terribly long ago. Colossians chapter three, a little bit longer section, but I'm not going to focus on all the details. I'm going to start in verse nine. This is part of the the section of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, you're, you're familiar with this pattern. We've highlighted this pattern of how Paul would write his letters. Generally speaking, this is true for all of his letters where, where, when he's writing to churches in the beginning of his letters, he would lay out doctrinal foundations. He would just do hardcore teaching and then at the end of his letters the second half usually of his letters uh, he would then take the foundations he's laid of the doctrine and he would connect it to how if that doctrine is fully understood fully embraced fully believed and fully lived out in the way that it should be this is how it will change your life And this is what your changed life will look like. This is one of those sections in Colossians 3, starting in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So the old self describes every single one of us before the day of our salvation. But he's highlighting not just who we were, but how we practiced before he redeemed us, how we lived, our patterns of behavior, our personal habits of attitude, perspective, and words. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self and put off its practices and have put on the new self, which is, and I could add the word here rightly so, Continually being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, here in the, the new life, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, which now is functioning, then is functioning like a therefore. In light of what Christ has done to save you, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If you put those things on, the things that are listed in verse 12, how much are you going to grumble toward those people that you are connected to in the body of Christ? Not going to be a lot of room left for grumbling if you've put on compassionate hearts, kind hearts, humble hearts, meek hearts, and patient hearts. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint, all recognizes in the rough and tumble world of daily church life, there's going to be times when you will have a complaint against someone. If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. That self-sacrificial, agape, other-centered, other-concerned love. The same kind of love God, of course, showed us in saving us and continues to show us every single day. Above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony if you're grumbling there's not perfect harmony but God's goal for his family his church is a an assembly of people living in perfect harmony with one another have you ever heard singers that sang in perfect harmony like I remember from my old old days Crosby Stills Nash and Young does anybody remember that group from a long time ago Sam's nodding his head yes like he knows anything about that group. They were, they were like 50 years before he was even born. I appreciate that you're listening occasionally to that quality of music, though. I mean, they were awesome in terms of not what they had to say, but how they beautifully sang it uh, in terms of just the harmonization. It was just it was a thing of beauty. Think of that. All of us just in perfect, harmonious relationship with each other. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And that is a throwaway, more like a, a capstone, like the, the cherry on the top. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed. That's again, a pretty broad category. Whatever you do in word, meaning every word that comes out of your mouth, every behavior, everything you ever engage in doing, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Three times he ends this passage with an emphasis on thankfulness, contrasted with the possibility of grumbling with each other or against each other or toward each other instead. I think we'll, instead of uh, tackling the last one, I think we'll stop there this morning. The last one, uh, I'm, I'm just going to share with you as a word of why don't you take this last passage and if I know you may do something else for your daily devotional and god bless you if you do that but maybe take this one to heart for monday morning tomorrow morning first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 18 which the emphasis in the passage is give thanks in all circumstances and i've taught on this more than once already i just make sure you don't misunderstand this one detail Paul is not calling us to give thanks for every circumstance that we find ourselves in. As if, you know, I'm so glad, like if I'm in Francis' shoes, I'm so glad I have to have a third surgery on my knee because the first two are just not getting the job done. You know, and there's many other things that we're not thankful for being in that situation. But in the midst of those circumstances and situations, there are always reasons to be thankful. And that's because we know from Romans 8 that God is at work to cause all things for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He's working all things together for our good. Even unfavorable unwanted and unchosen circumstances there are reasons to be thankful in it because god will use even those unwanted unfavorable unchosen things he will use even those to change something in us that he is after to change okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go back one more time um, I've still got a couple of minutes here. I have to squeeze this one in. This is one of my favorites. I uh, go with me uh, back to uh, the Book of Jonah. Okay, I've totally lost the Book of Jonah in my Bible. Somebody help me out here. Old Testament. Good man. See, that's why Dave and I work so well together. He's always helpful. Where's the book of Jonah? I'm not kidding. I'm sorry, after what? Thanks. No, it can't be after Obadiah. Oh my goodness, no one, I couldn't find it. All right, thank you. It's been too long since I've been in the book of Jonah. All right, so you know the story of Jonah. I don't have to retell the story. You know it super well. Um, I'm going to read from chapter 2. I'm just going to read Jonah's experience and the perspective. Now, understand this. When he, at this moment in chapter 2, he's where? He's in the belly of the fish. He's not writing Jonah chapter 2 while he's in the belly of the fish. He wrote this later, okay? After he got out of the belly. But he is accurately describing what was going through his heart and mind when he was in the belly. Verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And and, and technically, literally, who cast him into the heart of the seas? Technically, his shipmates cast him into the heart of the seas. But he doesn't identify them in his prayer. He recognizes the hidden hand of the Lord behind the actions of his shipmates. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet... This is where his faith awakens in the fish's belly. Yet I shall look again, look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. We're talking about seaweeds here. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Forsake their hope of steadfast love. And then, verse 9 But I, in the fish belly, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And with that high note of heart faith, in his most extreme experience, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Listen, there's not a single person here who has more reason to grumble and complain than Jonah did in the moment he was in the fish's belly. But he found grace from God you, you are in a better place than Jonah, not just circumstantially, but spiritually. You have the new birth, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have the entire Word of God at your disposal, and much of it had never even been written in the days of Jonah. You have no reason to do any less than what Jonah did in his most extreme circumstances, and that was to, with the voice of thanksgiving, give thanks to the lord rather than indulge in grumbling the anti-prayer all right let's let's pray father thank you for the opportunity to stop and just revisit things that we all know and to be reminded and refreshed in those grant us all the grace that we need as you're willing and working in us to cause us to will and to work Uh, help us to respond lord to your sanctifying work to change us in every way that we need to be changed. Make us a people characterized by thanksgiving rather than a people characterized as we previously were by our grumblings. Thank you, Father God. Amen. Amen. God bless all.